Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? You take serotonin away from people who find it really hard to produce enough serotonin, they will die. And that is not fair for that person who's really suffering with anxiety and depression to have to live that way. Chelsea Pottinger is the dynamic, brilliant and inspirational director of EQ Minds, who is on a mission to empower high performance through greater mindfulness. Chelsea's passion is helping busy minds reset, recharge and navigate the challenges of everyday life. She's an inspiring and engaging wellness speaker. I think I've seen her speak three times now and always love what Chelsea has to say. She's also an ambassador for mental health charities, including Are You Okay? and the Gidget Foundation, and recently became an author of the book The Mindful High Performer. Seeing and hearing this beautiful put-together woman, you'd be forgiven to think she hasn't got a care in the world. But in 2015, Chelsea experienced debilitating postnatal depression, which sent her spiralling to the lower depths of mental health. With determination, help and resilience, Chelsea came back from a sometimes very dark place with a new purpose, passion and education, and she's here to tell us more about how she continues to navigate some of those challenging times. Chelsea, it is so good to finally get you on the podcast. Welcome, honey. So fabulous to have you here. Thank you, beautiful Michelle. I am so excited to see you again and also to be a guest on your show. Thank you for inviting me on. Well, I love the fact that we have to book this in to actually have a chat on a podcast to catch up. We've got lots to talk about and you and I could be here for days. So let's kick in. If there is one thing you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? For me, it would be more around breaking the stigma on mental illness and also around medication for mental illness. That's what I'd love to explore with you today. Beautiful. Very important topics, both of those and something like the work you do in this space. So for those that don't know you, and I'm sure there's hardly any that listen to my podcast because you're such an icon, uh, what is it that you do, Chelsea, and, and the work in this space and why are you so passionate about this topic? So thank you. And and so for the audience that are listening right now, for those that haven't met before, it's really interesting life choices I was making in my 20s. You know, I was in the corporate world. I was doing very long days. I was partying at nighttime, you know, using gin or wine to take the edge off the stress. I was doing a lot of coffee drinking in the morning, triathlon training, hitting the pavement. Everything kind of was like this fast-paced lifestyle living in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, And we kind of just worked hard, we partied hard, and we worked out hard. And that was kind of the lifestyle. And it was pretty unsustainable, to be honest. And I did that for about a decade. And then in 2015, we find out that we're pregnant with our gorgeous little girl called Clara. And Michelle, it took us seven years to fall pregnant with her. So a very long time. So as soon as we found out we're pregnant, as you can imagine, we're just so beyond excited. The pregnancy was great and then the birth was actually a lovely birth. I was one of the lucky ones who had a really nice birth. 
But then three days later, I actually end up really, really unwell and end up having these really terrible suicidal thoughts. And that was only three days after giving birth. So, you know, that sort of chemical imbalance happened when the milk came in and I found myself in this really bizarre headspace. I didn't say anything to anyone because I was compressing all those thoughts and feelings down and I didn't want them to take Clara away and I didn't know what it was and I was really scared. So I kind of just hid behind this mask of having it all together for another good six weeks until I hit this real sort of pivotal moment where I was so clinically depressed and suicidal that I had to be really honest with my husband and he was incredible. He was like the rock that just showed up at the right time. And he's like, darling, we have to get you to hospital. I'm right here for you. We love you. I think you need clinical, really clinical help here. Let's call your cousin. And I was, again, one of the lucky ones, Michelle, who had a cousin who was a psychiatrist. I hadn't spoken to her about it yet because I was too scared. Scared or were you embarrassed a bit as well? Probably all of it, to be honest. In life, I was used to kind of knowing what to do and ticking boxes and making lists and just achieving in that kind of mode. And then when I couldn't get the handle on this baby thing and breastfeeding and I felt like a failure as well as a mum and I just felt like I was just such a burden on everyone. I'm like, why can't I do the thing that your body's designed to do? Why aren't I loving it like every other mother out there? Why aren't I looking like the cover of that magazine? (laughs) And I just crumbled. I just crumbled so hard and derailed and spiraled so quickly into a psychiatric hospital and so that there that sort of psychiatric stay for five weeks was really an eye-opener for me and almost like the rebirth of this new life to be honest and because when you find yourself clinically unwell laying in a hospital bed in a psych hospital and I was in a mums and bubs unit in Sydney and I was around other mothers also who had just completely just spiraled into the depths of depression and anxiety. It took me a few weeks to start feeling, I guess, a little bit more normal again in terms of the medication was kicking in and I was seeing my psychologist and I was learning how to meditate. And and I was laying in this hospital bed going, man, I'm not going to change the world laying here like this. I don't want this to happen to other people. And and then my amazing psychiatrist at the end of the five-week stay when I was getting my strength back and talking to her about she asked me a really cool question, actually. She's like, Charles, how do you want to feel in the future? Not what do you want to have? Like, what is your heart saying? And I said to her, I want to feel calm and I want to feel at peace. And she said, you know what? From now on, you're going to chase that feeling rather than the goals. She said to me, have you ever thought about being a psychologist? Like, you've got this really weird fascination with your own brain. You're a lovely human and you walk through the shoes of a very unwell patient. Why don't you go back and retrain? I thought, okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nothing like 10 years of, you know, study just thrown upon you. <laughs> You're like, what were you thinking? Had you ever had those feelings prior to the postnatal depression? Like, had you ever felt like that before? I'd had anxiety before because I'd gotten knocked out a few times pre-having Clara. Like, I fell down the stairs once and knocked the back of my head and got concussed. I got knocked out at the snow and I think both of those traumas to my brain caused that injury of then the anxiety started to kick in after that. But that was kind of manageable, that low bubbling anxiety. I did have um, some situations where when I actually fell down the stairs 
and hit the back of my head in Sydney. And then, then a few days later, after having that sort of trauma to the head, I had a panic attack in the Sydney Harbour tunnel. Even though the brain scans and the neurologist like, there's nothing showing up here, your, your brain seems fine. I knew it wasn't. My husband knew it wasn't. My doctor knew it wasn't. And so she sent me to a psychologist then to help me with anxiety and some cognitive behavior tools around driving back through the tunnel. One of the techniques like four sessions in was actually gentle exposure therapy. So I donated a lot of funding to that Sydney Harbour Tunnel. I was just doing laps, right? Like just going backwards and forwards. But that, you know, it was really interesting, Michelle, because even though that happened and I recovered from that, I didn't even think about that when I fell pregnant. I didn't even think about mentioning that to my obstetrician because I mean, why would I? I was just so happy, right? So then come back to, so you started to study. So you thought, okay, this, yeah, I'm going to try this. And what happened then? And by the way, everyone, longest journey ever. You're a smart woman. I would have thought you'd know that before you went into it. <laughs> oh, my God. I think if I had known that, I probably wouldn't have dipped my toe in. Oh, my goodness. I'm still there. I'm still studying. <laughs> yeah, so my psychiatrist is, and I talked to my husband. I'm like, darling, I think we should move out of Sydney. We both grew up in the country. I think for me, feeling calm and we, your family's down the south coast. We've got some friends moving down south. Why don't we move out of the crazy hustle and bustle of Sydney and we move to the country? And he was all for it. So we moved and then my Sydney friends are like, you'll be back in a day. You're not going to be able to handle the slow pace. And I literally walked out the front door with Clara in the pram, could hear the cows mooing. The neighbours said hello, got a great coffee. And I'm like, that's it. I'm sold. And you were the head of the curve before everyone then started to do the great migration to the country. How many years now have you lived down in beautiful Gong? Yeah, so we're down in Jerringong. There's like 4,000 people in our town. We pretty much know everyone. It's just so beautiful here. So we've been down here now for eight years and we wouldn't have it any other way, to be honest. What was the change, though, when you say that about, you know, from a mental health aspect or a life fulfillment aspect? Because that sort of stuff I'm discussing a lot with people at the moment is, is how to design the best life for you. And everyone comes up with excuses. And so the work that you both would have been doing, like to be back in the city and stuff, I imagine it was before the time that everyone was a lot more accepting of online work. How did you navigate all that, Charles? Because that's really interesting to make a big decision like that for the betterment of your health. But then how do you navigate still doing life? Yeah, absolutely. So we were lucky because Jay had a really great job in the bank. So he would go up to Sydney a couple of days a week and stay up there and then come home. And because we were really set on just having this karma lifestyle for our daughter as well, and all my decisions were like, okay, how do I sustain this calmness? I learned, go to uni, learn tools to stay calm. I live in a space, a beautiful countryside place that there's less static and less noise, calm. I have got friends here, they're just positive, happy, calm human beings. And then to make it work from a financial perspective, so we had Jay, full-time job in the bank, and then... I started up doing these free sessions in Jerringong to the Rotary Club and to the hospitals around mindfulness and things that I was learning at university. Now, I remember back when I started, which was 2016, and I founded the company EQ Minds, mindfulness wasn't really a thing here in Australia. No one was really talking about it. No one was talking about mental health, really. And meditation was just for woo-woo people, you know, hippies. That's all right. Yeah. But I was getting so much joy from training, you know, like I'd go down to the ocean pools and I'd see Roger, who's 80, and he's like, oh, Charles, I started the gratitude and love. You've changed my life. And that made me (laughs) so happy. And then my girlfriend who worked at eBay, she's like, I reckon you should come up and speak to the HR director because I think eBay is quite progressive and they might be interested in one of these mindfulness sessions. 
And so I went up and met the HR director and she's like, we love the sound of this. We come in and do a session. And I was beyond excited because they're going to pay me. So I came home, me, Clara and Jay doing a happy dance and Jay's still thinking that this is a cute hobby. He's like, I'm so happy that you're happy. You never have to work, babe. This is just for fun, right? And I'm like, yes, so much fun. I love it. So I went up to do some work at eBay. They loved it. That one session, they're like, can you come in and do another eight sessions? And I'm like, okay, let me go home and design the content. Then the general manager from eBay went to Uber and it's like the cultural change that you shifted at eBay, we come to Uber and do the same thing. And I'm like, Yes, I will. So as you can imagine, Han, like having those brands on your books at the start, like I was so blessed because, you know, then on LinkedIn I did a post and Westpac saw it and like, okay, we see what you're doing here. We come in and do a session at Westpac. And then kind of the brand just exploded. Then navigating that for three years by myself and I had enough money then, right, to start hiring a virtual assistant from the Philippines. <laughs> I was still doing everything, wearing every hat, you know, the marketing the invoicing, the bookings of everything, all the briefing calls, you know, the social media, all that stuff, the podcast, the meditation record. I mean, you just wear so many hats as a solopreneur, plus studying, plus being a mum. So there's a lot going on, but I was just so loving it. Like I had this flame inside my body going, you know what, if we just help one person every day, not fall in the river, you know, end up where I had, which is in a hospital bed, that's going to be a better world. Like that's going to be a good place. And so then as the more traction happened and we're just kind of, I was kind of bursting at the seams. I was juggling all these balls, trying to keep it together. And then I just kept tapping Jay on the shoulder, my husband going, Hey, darling, will you come and be the GM at EQ Minds? And he's like, babe, no, you know, it's, it's high risk because he's a banker. They're low risk. They like diversification. <laughs> and I just kept adding different angles, you know, how about if you could surf every day? What happens if you could be with me and Clara every day? You don't have to drive to Sydney anymore. And then the thing that got him across the line was like, you know what? Could you ask the bank for a sabbatical and let's try it out for a few weeks? And if you don't love it working in the company, then you can go back. And he said, okay. And so he took a sabbatical for a year. Anyway, he just absolutely loved it. And he's such a weapon. Like he brings in a completely different skill set to what I have. Then the business just start growing more and we're like okay it's incredible now we can hire a full digital marketing team to take the pressure off us trying to do everything then we start hiring speakers because again to de-risk the key risk personnel which was just me i used to do the 10 sessions a week with keynote speaking 10 times a week now my team a lot of my team do that and it's just awesome because the mission will never change for the company you know to empower and educate people to take care of their mental health and their well-being every day and so everyone that we hire, they're on brand. You know, they have a real true passion for that. Yeah, it's beautiful. What a great story, though, in terms of how it started, of you just helping others. So I want to come back into your journey around the medication as well. And so you talk about, you know, mental health. Now I think we've come a long way in that space around people talking about it and losing the edge, I'd word it, like losing the edge of the stigma around mental health. It's still in some circles, you know, people don't like to talk about it. But the real thing that you wanted to discuss is around the medication there. So why is there stigma around medication when this stuff is talked about more and more these days? It's a really interesting thing, Michelle. And, and, you know, I think about when I was at the height of my postnatal depression and suicidal before I got admitted into the hospital, I had to quickly see a locum psychologist in the GP centre to get referred in. And, you know, 
I mean, she was a beautiful human, but she's very young, straight out of university. And I don't think she could hear the desperation of, I was like literally driving to end my life. And she was like, have you tried a mindful shower and some deep breathing? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I am so far gone from a mindful shower. It's not even funny. And so I think this is really, really important that, you know, my brain at that time didn't even have the capacity to make the changes that I needed in order to heal. And I needed major help and I needed medication. And while I do believe that here in Australia and across the world that probably antidepressants are prescribed, you know, too frequently, if you are suicidal or you have exhausted all of the tools in your toolbox, I really feel like they are 100% necessary. And in 2020, I had a relapse. And so people always think that, you know, mental health relapses happen in these crisis points. Not necessarily so. I'd been off medication at that stage for six months. So my amazing team, I've got a weapon of a psychiatrist in my team. I have a psychologist, I have an integrative doctor, and I have a GP. And they're my team that keep me upright and they're amazing human beings. I love the way you word that as well. Like just beautiful describing it as you're, you know, like a coach and, you know, you're an athlete and you've got these people to support you rather than it be, a, you know, the stigma around that. It's fabulous. Yeah. Thank you, darling. And so twice they've tried to take me off medication just to see if they can hold me, right? Like in terms of everything that I do every day for my mental health, like I work and live in this space every day. I study psychology, I exercise every day, I meditate, I get vitamin D. You know, I really honour my body and my vessel. Some people can be on medication for six months and that's all, which is great, right? Like they're going through a really tough time. Maybe they've gone through a divorce. Maybe they've lost someone that they truly love. Those critical times where your brain needs a little bit of extra assistance of serotonin, they might just need it for six or 12 months. Others may need it for a couple of years. For myself, after having two, two relapses since 2015, after having postnatal depression, I am someone who needs to be on it for the rest of their life, right? It keeps me alive. I always feel like it's like insulin for diabetics, right? You take insulin away from a diabetic patient, they will die. You take serotonin away from people who find it really hard to produce enough serotonin, they will die. And that is not fair for that person who's really suffering with anxiety and depression to have to live that way. And so I remember when I had that relapse in 2020 and back to the whole people think it happens in a crisis, you have a relapse. I want to just, again, let people know it's not always the case. You know, like we'd had the biggest year at EQ Mines that year. We just bought a house. I just signed a book deal. So things were kind of like really going well and kaboom. I, I just relapsed because the book deal, there's just too much pressure and I probably honestly burnt myself out. Because for me, Michelle, one of the signs for my mental illness, if I'm starting to spiral, is insomnia. So I had anxiety insomnia that night when I signed the book deal for the Mind for High Performer. And that night I didn't sleep. And Jay comes into my bedroom because we sleep in separate rooms because I love sleep. Oh, it's another good topic. Right, we have to talk, get on to that. And we love each other dearly, but we just sleep in separate rooms. Anyway, he came in and I'm just bawling my eyes out and he just held me. He's like, what's going on? And like, darling, I, and because I've got so much awareness now, right, of a mental illness in my body, I'm like, I can feel it. I'm spiraling into a relapse. I know I can see it and it's coming hard. And he's like, baby, it's going to be totally okay. We've been through this before. We know exactly what we need to do. I am right here and I'm going to bounce everything for the next month and just protect you and Clara. So let's call your psychiatrist. And so first thing he did was he just cancelled every plan for the next month, like work, social, bang, just literally locked everything out because he knows it takes about a month for me to recover. And so 
called the psychiatrist. Okay, Charles, what's happened? And I'm like, oh, this is what's happened. I'll sign this book deal. I think that just tipped me over the edge. She's like, well, congratulations. We'll talk about that in a month when you've recovered. Let's get you straight back on a medication. We know Zoloft works for you. Let's get you some melatonin for your sleep. Let's take a month off, right? You've got a laceration in your brain. We just need to heal it. Like a knee injury. You do your knee, you have to take a month off. Rest it, ice it, right? Rehab. Same thing in the brain. You get a laceration in your brain, like what I will if I get sick. I need a month off. Self-care, everyday meditate, eat clean, exercise. Got everything I know to do plus the medication, right, as another tool in the toolkit. It was really interesting after that month, you know, and it was great because then I felt strong again and I called Murdoch and I'm like, I'm not writing the book unless you give me these three things because I've just come out of a massive relapse. One, you give me a year to write it because it was two months to write 70,000 words, so that was too tight of a deadline. Two, you let me get a ghostwriter because I'm not an expert writer and I need someone awesome to help me deliver this in a way that's going to be beautiful and palatable for the world. And three, you let me write about medication in that book as a chapter. And so I almost feel like the universe served that relapse up to me to go, hey, you need to be really honest about these stories because people might think that they can meditate their way out of de depression and then they can't and they kind of fall flat on their face and they're like, well, they feel this sense of helplessness because meditation is not getting them out of it. And so it became a more powerful book and they were great. Murdoch, like 100% Charles, that is absolutely fine by us. Let's do that. And, you know, five weeks later, I catch up with someone in one of the coffee shops. I was just having a chat to them. And I, they said, I haven't seen you for a little while on the surf. I'm like, yeah, I was unwell. So I just had to take care of myself. And I had to go back onto Zoloft. And, and they said, you know, why would you do Zoloft? Like, haven't you heard of St. John's Wort? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, the herb. Yeah, I've heard of that. I said, but I am so far from St. John Wort, it's not even funny. And I said, I actually need medication and my psychiatrist who's had 15 years of study in this space that truly understands the chemicals of my brain i'm going to trust her but thank you for caring and, and giving me that other suggestion i just want to share that story because i really feel like for someone who antidepressants saved my life and i need to share what i definitely do know and people do ask me oh chelsea but is, is antidepressants are they a one pill wonder and and they're not they're just another tool in the toolkit. Like you still need to be eating clean. You still need to exercise. You still need to get enough vitamin D. You still need to like dial back your workload if you need to. You need to have social connections, right? You need to have relationships. And they can just really help people take the edge off if they're unable to manage their anxiety and depression to a point where you can't even take on the behavioral advice from a psychologist and apply it, right? Because you've just got so much brain fog or you, you're manic with your anxiety and you can't even leave your house. I mean, that's not a way to live this life and you don't need to live that way. I like it in the way you describe it, though. I think that's the, you know, it's that reframing that we need to get our heads around if, you know, like my husband has heart disease. And so he's had, you know, several operations now and he's very lucky to be alive, but he takes medication every day for that. And there's no judgment around that. Everyone knows that his arteries are not as good as others or, you know, and a lot of that it's hereditary. But this whole connotation still that that's acceptable or I'm on thyroid medication because my thyroid doesn't work properly. And they determined that a few years ago, I get regular tests to see how it's tracking and whether they need to up or down it. But I'm probably going to be on that forever as well. I don't really like that because like you, I eat pretty cleanly. I'm, I'm very healthy and, 
and I'm very conscious of what I put in my body. But I've also recognized that my body doesn't, it's a chemical thing. And if it can't create that itself and I can't get that from other ways, then it needs some assistance. And so that's the way, you know, of which we can help this. And so having that notion that it's a chemical element that's going on, whether it's depression or, as you say, you're not producing serotonin, it's a nicer way for people to think about it and also to support others that are going through that, right? A hundred percent. And, you know, I don't know anyone, and thanks for sharing that, Michelle. That's such a beautiful analogy, darling. And I don't know anyone ever that talks to me about weaning off their reflux medication or weaning off their (laughs) heart medication, but people tell you all the time when they're weaning off their antidepressants. Again, it's that stigma thing of like justify if we're taking medication or if we need to wean off it. Is it because it dulls the senses? Is that why people think it's different for everyone, right? And that's what I always say to people, hey... This is an area that you don't need to be monogamous in, like is with medication or with therapists. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Not one size fits all. If your medication is numbing you out, it's time to go and explore with your psychiatrist a new one because it shouldn't be doing that. I feel all emotions, right? Like I feel all emotions. People think, oh, my gosh, you gain weight or you lose your libido. Again, that would be a conversation with your doctor to try another different type of medication. Also, like if you ever feel like you need any kind of dialogue for defending your treatment choices, a couple of little ideas. If you need to say something to someone back, you know, like say it's an eye roll right, from a colleague, which is worth a thousand words or a offensive unsolicited advice from a person in the doctor's waiting room or there's going to be someone who thinks they know better than what, what you do or what your psychiatrist does, right? So below a few ideas, if you need little dialogues to help, things like, Thanks so much for sharing that suggestion. I'm going to follow the advice from my psychiatrist or I really appreciate your concern, but I'm feeling really confident with my current plan or I've done so much research, right, and work around this space. At this time, I feel that this is what's best for me. So they're kind of three little statements that can help when you're doing what you feel is best for you. And to know also, hun, that you're not alone, right? You're not alone going through it and So many people call me because they know that I've gone on and off medication and they're like, Chelsea, I'm considering going on it. Oh, my gosh, what do you... And I'm like, great. I'm so proud of you. I'm right here to support you. It may feel a little bit funny while you're weaning on. Just text in or call me at any time. Because also sometimes, Michelle, there's those mindset reframes again. Like even when I was... 2020 was good for me, right, because it helped me again understand the disease state and see the illness through the eyes again of an anxious patient. And so it always reminds me, I'm like, ah, this is what it feels like, right? Because you're in the trench again. You're like, oh, I'm so frustrated that I'm here, but I now know. The beautiful thing is once you've gone down this rodeo a few times, you recognize it earlier and you know what to do. You don't have as much helplessness of feelings because you know that you will always come through the other side. Whereas if it's your first time, it's super bloody scary. So you're always looking for hope, optimism stories going, well, who's like me and who's recovered and who's been in a similar situation? And again, that's why, Michelle, I'm so grateful for these kinds of podcasts and stories because someone's going to listen to this and maybe share it with their boyfriend or their mother or their cousin who's currently in a rural state and they're confused or worried about going on medication. I hope this just eases their worry and gives them the confidence of like, okay, well, if Chelsea's gone through it and she's recovered, And she's a meditation guru. That's the thing I love about your story and also the work you do, right? You know, you surf, you do all the things that you're supposed to do to manage that stuff. And you say, 
And it's not all. I take medication and it's part of the, you know, your language around the toolbox, which is beautiful. So tell us, I could talk to you all day, as we know. We usually have a glass of wine in hand. But and that's the other thing. I love having a glass of wine. I love having a coffee. I think also people think that I don't drink coffee. I'm like, what? No, I bloody love coffee. And I love having a glass of wine. I love my life. And the reason I love it so much is because I've got all this now here in the toolkit, you know. And same with you, right? You've just been in Paris, which is you just inspired me to go. And just divine to sit down with you, Tess. And thank you for all the work you do in this space, honestly. I've seen you speak numerous times. You're an inspiration and love your uh, mindfulness sessions as well. We'll put everything in the show notes so everyone can follow you and do your stuff online. And anyone looking for uh, some great people to help their organisations, EQ Minds is where it's at. So just beautiful to see your face today thank you you're a diamond thank you so much michelle well there you have it wasn't that an incredible conversation i hope you enjoyed it as much as i've enjoyed bringing it to you if you did like it can i ask a small favor please rate and review on your listening platform for me i know everyone asks this but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort i put into this for you all the more worthwhile and until next time if you have one question you'd like to ask me hit me up on my socials or jump on my website michellejcox.com